market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. The podcast is worth at least 10 times what you pay for it. That's right. We're bringing the value here at Motley Fool Money. I'm Scott Phillips. And with me, as always, the doctor of style, the doctor of value, the doctor of growth, Dr. Nirban Mahati. How are you, buddy? I am very good, buddy. You know, I am not value. No, you're not <laughs> I'm not you're value. Not value. You're I'm, all growth all the time. I'm all this growth. <laughs> very high multiples, running, running, running fast. Except when it comes to spending your money. You are, I, you're, you're good at finding value when it comes to spending, just not investing. Yeah, right? yeah I, I do not like, well. You're I'm, a value spender or a growth investor? <laughs> I am a very careful spender. <laughs> I want to buy everything. Um, you know, when I go looking for property, have I told you this story? Let me tell our members this story. So I go to look for a property. The advertised range is, let's say, $1 million. Mm-hmm. And if I like the house, I'll make an offer. Right. But $990,000, Exactly. Either 900000 or less. <laughs> I immediately start at 10% that's, below. That's value central, mate. A ve- that's absolutely value central. And I tell them, you know, if you want to sell it to me, I've got my deposit ready, but that's my price. It's not going to move up. How's that working for you so far? Uh, not really well. <laughs> not enough desperate sellers yet? Well, eventually there'll be sellers, right? You know, eventually somebody's going to meet me at my price <laughs> at that time. And if they come and meet me at my price, I'm probably going to say, uh, actually, the price has changed. <laughs> it's now 850 You're never going to buy a house, are you? Uh, maybe not. That's okay. <laughs> Mate, can I tell you though, that's a very, very good way of doing it, particularly if you're not desperate and you don't mind the house you're buying. Um, just waiting for the desperate desperate seller is a very smart way to, to invest, a smart way to buy any asset, right? Well, well yeah, there's a, there's a caveat to that, right? So if you did not have a house mm. and you applied this strategy, <laughs> you may never have a house. <laughs> that's right. Right? So it's the same thing. So, you know, you, you can apply the strategy in, uh, uh, in moderation. <laughs> Let's say you should apply it in moderation. Now, Australian house prices have been going pretty well for the last 40 years. You're a winners keep on winning guy. Why not just pay up and take part? Uh, because a house is not a uh, producing asset. That's a winning asset. We go fantastically. Well, stuff that, you know, there's a speculation, <laughs> right? There's, spe- there's bubble speculations. There's been the tulip mania. There's been all sorts of mania. <laughs> we can also talk of the house price as some sort of mania. Um, there's a headline for the podcast. Yeah, the mania. I was going to apologize for going for a tangent, mate, but if we did that every time, we'd never do anything else. So we're just going to keep going and get to the actual, the actual proper content of this week's podcast. You reckon members can tell this isn't scripted? This is definitely true, very, true. very much not true, scripted. True that comes across. <laughs> there is no script. <laughs> so, so secret insights, another tangent on a tangent, secret little bit of inside business. We very first started this podcast many years ago. Uh, we actually started by scripting the entire thing word for word. Uh, you, you weren't here at that time, mate. It was someone else doing it. Andrew was doing it with me. And we literally scripted the entire thing word for word. And then eventually we started to script bullet points. And then we just basically now we just set up an agenda and talk. And I think that's actually a, hopefully a much better listening experience for our members or listeners. Or maybe not. Maybe they, maybe they would rather us go back to being scripted. I'm not sure. But uh, you get what you get. And as the school kids know, you don't get upset. Speaking of which, mate, earnings is rolling on. Has this been the busiest week of the month? It feels like it to me. <sighs> you know what? Like I- <laughs> That's why I gives it away, mate. <laughs> yeah, like- <laughs> I, I, there are days when I don't know whether it's Monday or Tuesday. <laughs> so, so it's I, I mate, it's Thursday. Well, okay, that's good to know. It's Thursday. <laughs> it, it, it has been like uh, a fire hose. It has and been. Yeah, well, I think, you know, this is the last week, right? Or yeah, it, in theory. Yeah, yeah, in theory, it's the last week, the, right? Uh, so, this is the end of September, end of August, I should say. So, yeah. well, Monday's the 31st of August. So, those who want to report late, <laughs> okay. can, and, and there will be plenty of report Monday afternoon. So, we, unfortunately, yeah. we've got to come back from the weekend for one more day of it. Uh, for the laggers to, to report, and then it's uh, then we're in free and clear after that. Yeah, like, it looks like I think of the companies I'm interested in, probably about eighty percent have mm. reported. You know, a lot of the small companies they wait absolutely till the last day. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure what they exactly do, but you know, probably they, you know, it takes them <laughs> all the yeah. very minutes and seconds and stuff to actually put together the accounts and get it, you know, run it through the accountant and get it approved by yeah. the auditor, and then it's actually really true. About having having worked for a couple of public companies, um, both Australian and US public companies, the amount of work is required by a relatively small team in some small business cases. Um, the, the bigger the team, obviously, the quicker it gets done and the less complex the business, the quicker it gets done. But um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Like, um, you know, they say accounting is the language of business and that's true. And I'm glad there are standards. I'm glad people are doing this stuff. But man, for literally a month and a half, twice a year, that's all these people do. They're already working on it before the end of the financial year and they just have to play out through it for you know about a month and a half, you know, long days, weekends. They get paid, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, not, um, not putting out the port in for them, but it's a, <laughs> I don't know, it's a, it's a certain type of person who wants to, wants to work on financial accounts. I'll put it that way. 
So, speaking of which, let's get into those earnings. Um, it has been a busy week. There is a bit more to go, but a couple of big ones this week, mate. Some we cover, some we don't, but worth talking about. The first one that got my attention on Monday was Twiggy's billion-dollar payday. And no, Fortescue didn't make a billion dollars. No, Twiggy didn't make a billion dollars or doesn't own a billion dollars worth of shares. He has many more than that. He got a billion dollars, $1.1 billion to be exact, in dividends. Fortescue's profit was up 49% with the iron ore price well over 100 bucks as we speak. I, I, the first thing is, you'd check your bank account, wouldn't you? you you'd, you'd make sure the BSB and account number was right with your share registry. You wouldn't want to be kind of, you know, if I, if I reckon I would have to get a separate keyboard and mouse just for dividend day because I'd be hitting refresh that many times, waiting desperately for that cash to turn up my bank account. Mm. I, the other thing I thought is, can you imagine having a bank account with that many zeros? Like, how, I mean, how, how cool would that be to see all those zeros just kind of rock up? I think that'd be brilliant. I, I, I'll never have the experience, unfortunately, unless Twiggy wants to give me some money. And Twiggy, if you're listening, feel free. Um, I, I, there's so many different ways to take this, mate. Obviously, the billion dollars is just the, the result rather than the cause. 49% lift in Fortescue, one of the best. We don't talk about it much because we're not real big mining guys here at The Fool, but one of the best and biggest success stories of Australian business, I think, over the last decade, decade and a half, um, building a world competitive iron ore business effectively from scratch. Um, Twiggy deserves huge amounts of plaudits for getting it done. Your thoughts on Fortescue's profit lift, does it make you interested? Do you, how do you think about mining? How do you think about iron ore? Those sort of numbers, I mean, they're, they're staggeringly big numbers. You know, I have a simple answer for that. I do not think about mining. <laughs> 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 I, have, I, have, I, have, I have high respect for uh, people who, you know, have achieved. <laughs> you know, I have high respect for people who are, um, uh, you know, business creators and job creators and things like that. I think I, I do remember that, you know, maybe four or five years back, you know, people didn't think that, you know, uh, Fortescue had much of an option or yeah, yeah, right, 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 was right. much yep. of a thing. Yep. Well, uh, there we go. Now it's a huge business, a big business, paying a dividend dollars of uh, you know a billion dollars in dividend to um, someone. I mean, it's it's on a PE of eight or something. Yeah, has a market capitalization of fifty-seven billion dollars. So yeah, so awesomely done. Um, I have no idea of because um, valuing this business. So you know, I tend to stay away. I think that's fair, mate. And I think it's you know I, I say regularly on this podcast and elsewhere. Um, you know, it, they've got to make hay while the sun shines. But the the iron ore price is 120 bucks a ton now. It could easily be 40 dollars a ton by this time next year. And I think that's if you're an investor in iron ore or any any commodities, you need to know the price can move. Huge, huge props to Twiggy and to Rion Fortescue. Oh, sorry, Rion BHP for doing such a good job keeping their costs down. All they can do is control the controllables, as they say, and keeping the cost down has been a wonderful, wonderful thing they've done. They mine in the tens of dollars per ton. Can you imagine? I mean, think about what a crazy. Think about how, think about how big a ton of dirt. Like, just try and conceptualize that and think that's worth twelve dollars, fifteen dollars out of the ground on a trade to a port. It, uh, the scale of these things is just phenomenal, isn't it? This is a twelve bagger in the last five years. This is wow. ex- excluding dividends, by the way. Now, to your point, though, it's also worth saying that at one point, Twiggy did do a mercy dash to New York to try and convince the bankers not to foreclose on the company. Yeah. I was on, I was on Sky News Business at the time, and we were actually talking about, literally as that happened, I think it was over a weekend from memory, and it was, it was literally touch and go. Um, so as you say, you can, you can get out of jail, but man, you also get paid pretty well if things go well, don't you? Yeah, I mean, again, great, you know, again, creating creating mm-hmm. a world-class business, creating jobs. Yeah. Uh, he, he deserves a lot of credit for that. So yeah, full marks. Now let's move on to something a bit more or closer to our wheelhouse. Still not really exactly in your uh, sweet spot, but retail stocks, mate. This is so it's probably worth talking about earnings season generally as we talk about retail because I would say I'll make a statement. You can tell me whether I'm right or wrong. I would say this earnings season has been one of upside surprises from unexpected areas. And I guess if they're surprised, they are unexpected by definition. So maybe I'm maybe I'm repeating myself. But retail stocks have done on the main incredibly well. Uh, we've seen Kogan, JB Hi-Fi. We've seen Coles and Woolies sales up strongly. Again, not super super surprising, but but up strongly. Um, super Retail, the most recent one, doing a spectacular job. They had sales up 32% in July versus the previous year. Now, again, of course, that's because there were less sales earlier in the year. But I'll tell you what, they've come roaring back retail stocks. Is it? Is it, uh, I guess, you know, question about earnings season, question about retail stocks. How do you kind of contextualize these sorts of numbers? Yes, that's interesting. I mean, you know, normally one would think that um, typically online-only businesses or mm. e-commerce would be mm. the ones that are successful. Um, but, but I think a couple of things here. A lot of businesses have become very good at running and mm-hmm. you know creating and running and de- creating, developing and running a online channel. 
Yeah, right. right. So that has helped almost everyone who has been willing to do that, right? Yeah. Number two is I think I think it's it's easy to forget, but all that stimulus money, um, all all the you know, including super withdrawals, a portion of that has made its way to retail land, right? Yeah, yeah. So if, if there is if, really there, if there's if there's extra cash that has yeah, yeah. become yeah. available, that has become, you know, resulted in people buying extra things. I mean that's natural tendency of people. You've got some money, extra money, you you spend it. Um so that's how I contextualize mm, sort of the retail mm. um success. Mm. I guess the main question is I mean it, it is here's the thing. There's no way retail in Australia grows by thirty percent on average, right? <laughs> it's right. just not possible. That's it's right. impossible. There's right? not enough money going around. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, it's yeah, just you yeah. know the population is not growing yeah, at, yeah. at that rate. Yeah. I mean, you can't expect retail to grow at that rate, yeah, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> and and then some of these companies like Super Retail or even Premier Investments, right? Mm. I mean. If Nick Scarley was another one too. Had a great Nick's, result. Well, Nick Scarley's are people doing, you know, buying the yeah. extra furniture yep. uh, because they're now locked down at home. home. I exactly. mean, I mean, those, a lot of those things are one time, right? Yep. And the the interesting thing with this phenomenon is that you basically, tr- you, when many of these businesses are not winning share from others, they're right. really transferring share from one channel to the other. Okay. Right. Yep. So if you had a you know retail channel. In the in the shop in the mall, you're basically transferring that sale to online, right? Okay. Right. Um, so I, I don't know. Like I mean, next year's comps are going to be very very interesting, is what <laughs> I'm going to say. Um, again, it's a question of how much of that is baked into it, um, and things like that. But yeah. but yeah, like I mean, it's it's interesting. Um, but it's it's you know retail to me is is a hard investment zone, especially if you can't find. Um, I guess secular trends or yeah. um, long sort of long. Uh, I think the only exception I'll make f- to that rule yeah. is businesses that have a low um, operating cost okay. by design. Right. Tell me, and, tell me how that plays out. Uh, so, so examples would be things like Kogan and so on, where um, you know they might have a few big um, um, you know distribution centers. Mm. You know, they source probably stuff on demand. Uh, they've got some of their own brands, which basically means that you know they're buying stuff for cheap, marking it up a little bit, and then you know making some money off it. Right. Right. So you've got a low cost base, and if you can increase your share of the market, at the, that's going to come at the cost of others, right? Mm. Um, then you can actually keep growing but other than those guys it's really hard in my mind uh, because the, all the other guys are basically replacing their own existing yeah, yeah. sales so I mean it's, it's a little bit of a hard game but is it, is it to some degree though taking share from others who aren't necessarily as good I mean to some degree it, the other way to look at it is this is a this is a brand new fight brand new turf and if I think I think you and I both believe maybe not I don't know if we agree on time frames but at some point online, online retail is more than half of total retail right do we agree on that yeah and I guess at that point it's possible that the the brand market shares in their individual segments stay where they are and just transfer online. But it's also possible, I think, to some degree, that being online, being first, being better, all that kind of good stuff. I mean, Temple of Webster's come from nowhere to have some sort of share in furniture. Kogan's come from somewhere nowhere to have some sort of share in in electronics. Um, that will change the, the the market shares of of the incumbents, right? So while it's not necessarily growing total retail pie, it may well be switching switching sales between brands as much as between channels. Yeah, so that is partly true, but here's the couple of things, mm. right? We we are no longer in the uh, in the early two thousands, right? <laughs> right now, so I wish so, man, I was much younger then. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. Number one would be that the the fact that one retail wins over another retail, this is an age yeah. old saga that has yeah, been yeah. playing on for ages. There's retail bankruptcies yes. uh, that happen, <laughs> like you know, almost like every other month, yeah, right? Yeah. So there's that. Yeah. So this is not a new phenomenon. Number two is, if you are any half-decent retailer today and you don't have an online channel, Mm. you are going to be the one that's going to go bankrupt. Yeah, right. Right? So, and the number three in my my mind is doing online business now Mm. is no longer a channel, no longer a special thing. Even Target is growing its online digital sales (laughs) by 100% in the US. Yeah, right. right? Right. Even Walmart is is growing at 100% or something like that, some ridiculous rate. So, I think if you can't do online, you're toast. <laughs> and if you're doing online, in my mind, yeah. you're basically sh- stealing share from your like-minded uh, group, mm. which is what you would have been stealing share if from in your like-minded cohort yeah, yeah, of yeah. successful yeah. retailers. So I agree with that. I guess I'm just thinking that the competitive dynamics are different, right? If you're, I, I don't think it's going to be universally true that the dominant 
offline retailers are necessarily the dominant online retailers at the end of this game. And so, so you're right. You're right about this. Exactly the same sector cohort. It's the same competitive set. Absolutely. But the way consumers interact with your brand, how relevant you are to those current and new consumers online, you're right, not, not, none of it's hard, but then physical retail's not hard either and we still see some survive and some some lose. I guess I'm just thinking that success in physical retail, so he, Harvey Norman, a great example, right? Really super successful category killer business for 50 years. Early, mid-1970s, starts off, changes the game entirely and at that point we could have said, talk about big box and category killers like we're talking about online now. Harvey Norman gets to 2020, it is arguably... <laughs> the worst of the majors when it comes to online shopping. And so I would expect it would start losing, it would have a higher share of physical retail than it has of non-physical retail, for example. And I guess all I'm saying is at some point, if we can, there may be some outsized gains to be had from those who will take share because they're better online retailers, relatively speaking, than they are offline retailers. And so there's that kind of category plus something they get, whereas others will get category minus something as they lose share. Yeah, so I don't disagree with that. My thing with retail largely is that retail is a dogfight. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> exactly, yeah. I just don't like to invest yeah. in dogfight. Yeah. It's just not my thing. Um, y- you know, there is, the scope of innovation in dogfight is is very little. Um, <laughs> That's fair. And, you know, like, I mean, so let's use, use Harvey Norman as an example. I mean, Harvey Norman mm-hmm. is not, it's slow to do online for whatever reason mm. that doesn't stop Temple and Webster or Nick Scully or somebody mm-hmm. else from, doing. you know, today you can buy, like, you know, we were looking for some furniture and, to the problem right now is there are so many choices yeah, available. Yeah. <laughs> it's confusing. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I looked at 10 different sites and I said, I'm not going to buy any of these because, mm-hmm. you know, it's very confusing. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think this, you know, again, it's just a dogfight of a different type. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so, so let me put, let me just abstract and say online today is mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. what online was 10 years ago. Right. If 10 years ago you were investing in online, you were investing in a trend where there was going to be, I guess you could identify clear winners. And right now in my mind, you know, if you have a decent balance sheet and ability to withstand mm-hmm. uh, pressure for in a couple of years, if you're not going to go broke, you can reinvent yourself, which is what, you know, basically Walmart and Target and whoever else is showing that, you know, yeah. if you've got the balance sheet, you can reinvent yourself. If you don't got a balance sheet and you, you know, you're, you're basically tethering on the edge of precipice, uh, then you're going to die. Mm-hmm. Right. So, it's that that's how I think about retail. Fascinating. Let's go from there to uh, well, let's stay with retail for a second. Actually, this is actually not about the retail results necessarily, but it certainly is is related. If that's true, and if we're seeing such dramatic growth in online retail at the expense of offline, or at least um, you know proportionally, if not in total. That's still going to be pretty ugly. We've talked about this before, but pretty ugly for retail landlords, right? Um, it, it, we, it's, it's. I can't overstate this enough, and and maybe, maybe there's a way of demonstrating. It. It's hard to do on audio format, but it is. You know, these retail businesses can be really successful and really profitable if they're growing, because you've got a fixed cost base, you've got lights, power, shelving, inventory, staff, and if you can do an extra five or ten percent of sales. That money falls almost entirely to the bottom line because you've already got one staff member, the lights are already on, the shelving's already there, you've paid the rent, all that stuff is, is there. On the flip side, because there's a low margin businesses in general, and you talk about the dogfight, it's absolutely true. At some point, it only takes a couple of percentage points of loss at a store level to jeopardize an entire group of retailers. And I think my concern about that is not only for the retailers themselves, but then if you ex- expand that and extrapolate that to then retail landlords, you know, you make money at, at 98% capacity in terms of, you know, your, the number of tenants using your, your center. If you're at 92 or 93% capacity for any extended period of time, the, the costs, again, of the same thing are, are working exactly the same way. You're kind of a, you're a super retailer at some level, no pun intended with super retail, but you're, you're kind of this, you know, you're kind of this meta retailer where you are the sum total of your of your tenants and that goes both ways as well. I, I am, it's, it's you can you can doom and gloom this for a long time before it eventually becomes real. But I think when it does start to become real, it's going to be a it's going to be an absolute car crash. Like everything's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's bearable, it's bearable. Oh my god, everything's gone to absolute poo. It's my sense, right? Because of the way these operating leverage numbers work, you can make it through, you can make it through, you can make it through. But at some point, once you tip, once you pass that tipping point, it's really hard to come back from. And I, I I can't see how we don't. At some point, now I don't have any view on the on the timing. By the way, like I've I had expected it would be worse before now, so um, I'll, I'll put that out there so people can kind of you know gauge and, and weight my own thoughts. But it's got to be it, it feels completely inevitable to me. The question is only timing in my mind. Yeah, as a commercial real estate, I think is well s- certain types of commercial real estate. I think is in a world of hurt um, be, mm. again because it's 
like I mean, you know, the the cost base there is very high. Mm. Um, you know, so there's labor, there is rent, there's all these other things. And mm. if you can get rid of most of those things and move it online, um, you know, you can significantly reduce your cost base. So I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I don't disagree with anything that you're saying, really. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's tough. So if you're investing in retail, just be careful. If you're investing in retail landlords, be extra specially careful because at least, ironically. If you invest in good retailer, we've just talked about the way you can take share. Good retailers will survive longer than bad retailers. The problem is if you're a, if you're a landlord, you're kind of stuck in the middle of that because you have every retailer almost by definition. So you don't get to only have the good ones uh, and the bad ones can really cost you. Let's move on, mate, to, speaking of costing you, to Blackmores. Now, I own shares in Blackmores for full disclosure up front. Um, it delivered exactly as it said it was going to. Unfortunately, that was still really ordinary. <laughs> I'd, I'll, I'll almost say terrible. Um, this is a business that has got itself in a massive amount of, just it's tripped over its own feet to the point where it doesn't really know where it's going, desperately trying to regain some sort of balance, some sort of growth strategy. I think I think the headline of their press release was towards sustainable growth. Um, towards kind of gives you the sense they're not there already, which is funnily enough exactly the problem. They're really struggling to find a way to grow, mate. Their Chinese business that was supposed to be a shining light has really faltered. Um, the Daigu business of exporting suitcase trade from Australia to China is, seems all but dead. They do seem to be kind of the cash cow of Australian business seems to be okay at a base level, but it's not quite enough when you're paying the sort of multiple and share price you're paying for Blackmores. Is this a, is this a game that's over or is there is there opportunity still ahead? Uh, let me see. How critical do you want to be? Go for it, mate. <laughs> tell, me the, tell me what you really think, as we so, like to say. So here's the thing. I think Blackmore is what I call the mm. epitome of... Uh, of businesses on the ASX that's mm. sort of the large business that doesn't know what to do mm. next, mm. I think. Um, and, and there are lots of them. Like, you know, when you look at the ASX 200, there are many that just can't transition mm. from being a small business growing to being a big business that's growing. That that transition to growing at scale mm. uh, is fantastically hard. And that's exactly what's the mm. problem with Blackmores. That, that's number one. I think that's just a very difficult thing to do and you know most businesses can't do it properly mm-hmm. second i think see i think there's a there's an overall execution problem with with blackmores so that's mm-hmm. not not just a sales execution so i've pointed out many times right you know people would think look at blackmores and think oh you know this is kind of a blue chip company and I always like to ask, is it blue chip? Mm-hmm. And the reason I asked that question is like, I mean, you know, I had, had a look at its cash balance mm-hmm. uh, maybe six months back and it was $30 mm-hmm. million. Dollars. Yeah. Actually, I, I was looking at its cash balance again after the result. Mm-hmm. And I know of many $300 million market cap software companies that have more cash on their balance sheet. Uh, and this is, you know, after removing debt, debt right, right. and Blackmores. So I think Blackmores is... In its problem, in this problem that it is largely because of its own creation, it's mm. uh, I would say its management of capital has been pretty poor. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I think. Um, the, I, I think the other thing is that you know investors have given. Uh, there was a point where you know the the multiple on the stock mm. was as if this is like you know better than Amazon, mm-hmm. right? I mean, even now it's like on some fifty or sixty times um, earnings, right? I mean. Does it really deserve that kind of earnings, mm. right? And and then the final thing I would say is that companies that want to grow, their fascination with paying dividends, it just, <laughs> it, it just blows my mind. Yeah. If you want to grow, invest the you know earnings mm-hmm. that retain earnings and invest it. Uh, don't look at the share market as the printing press, right? Mm-hmm. And this is again a problem with a lot of those large companies that look at the share market as a printing press. Um, th- this is this is really fundamentally capital allocation problems that a lot of these larger companies have. Right. Um, that's what I think. Like uh, then there are a couple of other things, you know. Like I, I think there was a period where the Daigu sales were really um, pushing pushing the numbers up yeah. um, and it turned out to be not a sustainable channel. There's the, the other thing is that, I mean, vitamins by de- by definition, I think is a very competitive area. Mm. There are a lot of different vitamin ba- uh, brands. Even if you just go to like Chemist Warehouse, you'll see like 20 different you know vitamin <laughs> brands, right? So yeah. it's a very, very competitive area. It's very difficult to create an edge, like mm. what is going to be your edge uh, in vitamins. Uh, you can have some brand, like, you know, people recognize the brand, but what's your edge? Yeah. I think that's the thing. Um, yeah, like so. I mean, you know, it's a combination of things. I, I don't think it's a bad business, but I don't think it's you know, it's is it worth paying the multiple? That's that's really been my question with it. Um, and yeah, like I mean, 
think? Have I been fairly critical? I think you've been reasonably critical, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and this is, and this, I think this is the hard part, right? For and, and as Warren Buffett has said before, turnarounds seldom turn, and that, that's I think the challenge for Blackmores is. Uh, look, I think, I think, the, I think the comparisons with old sales are, if not unfair, at least maybe unreasonable, because it's easier to say if if, if we're the multi had a one-off chance to make a five million dollar sale that we knew wasn't going to happen again. And yet we weren't going to ever hit that sales number for the next five years because we had that one sale and it was just really great. And, you know, you, you could say, yes, sales have never been back to that level and we've spent six, five years trying to get back to the same level as 2020. That will all be true, but not necessarily the whole picture because you take the sales you can get when you can get them, right? As long as you right-size the business. And that's, I think, my biggest issue with Blackmores is some past decisions rather than the current management. Now, current management may not be able to get out from under this burden, quite honestly. They've bought a, a, a production facility I think they have no business owning. They've... It, they, they've spent a lot of money on staff and facilities and stuff, assuming prosperity was going to continue. And that, I think, is the major challenge for these businesses. One thing to say, well, okay, that you know things will get better. It was one off. It's all that fine. But if you spend the money as if it's going to keep coming in, that's your biggest problem. I think that that is Blackmore's issues right now. Um, the doggy trade, as you say, was a, was a one off. It wasn't sustainable. Should they have taken the money? Absolutely, in my view. But um, but it does mean you've got to try and work out what comes next, right? And it was never it should never have been assumed to have been an ongoing business because uh, you know I use the phrase supply push rather than demand pull in other words you know if, if you're if you if you have a if, it was a if there's a Chinese person in Australia who decides to buy Blackmore send it at home and sell it the brands they put in the suitcase the ones that get sold and so that is the supply push right they are pushing the product into China once that goes away the Chinese people have to want Blackmore and actively seek it out and that's where this demand pull starts and that's a very very different thing I think that's what Blackmore is currently struggling to, to achieve I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. <laughs> I'm optimistic. I still own the shares for the record, so that tells you exactly what I think. But yeah, there's definitely a, a challenge for current management to, to basically get out from under the bad decisions and, and to some degree just, you know, I won't say luck, but certainly, you know, circumstance. That those sales went away. You're stuck with a cost base. They're still trying to cut costs to kind of fix the business up again. Um, maybe that's the, you know, any business can cut costs. Uh, whether they can get find growth again, I guess, is the big question for Blackmores. Let me let me take a company that you've you've referred to obliquely if not directly a2 milk the other business that is australia to china at least you know in that in that kind of sector um doing much better than blackmores <laughs> you shared some sales numbers with the other day was it like 30 percent compound growth for five years or something a phenomenal phenomenal growth story for, for a2 milk yeah like so like i like to say this quite often i think what you know there's a notion of what people and I say this largely to correct investor sentiment. Mm. And one of the notions is that, you know, dividends and franking basically means blue chip. It does not. Yeah. It, dividends and franking in most cases, actually large number of dividends and franking almost means the business is basically like <laughs> nearly dead. Uh, can, can I can I say though, I, I, I even think the use of the word blue chip is not very helpful. I, I, yeah. I, I, I instantly kind of retract from any any definition, any application of that, of that very word or phrase because it is... It is. It's, I've said before. It's a stockbroker's marketing term. It belongs in no investor's lexicon anywhere meaningfully around. You know what? What is blue chip really? Does it actually matter? Like, what, what's what's the point of it? And if the point of it is just trying to infer something that can be used by by a stockbroker to sell some stock or a or a company to raise some capital, um, I'd rather I'd rather just take the word out, take it out the back and shoot it. Quite honestly. Yeah, sure. So, like, I mean, and again, I'm not going to be able to change the usage of the word blue chip because that's, you know, <laughs> uh, like, uh, let's call it the ASX 200, right? These are the larger companies. Among the ASX yeah. 200, I think the problematic ones are the ones that pay a lot of dividend. That's been, I think, and, and I think there's an in investor sentiment moving towards buying those that pay a lot of dividend because, and, you know, what people, you know, and I keep whinging about this on, on Twitter, some of these companies actually print cash mm, mm. on the market to pay the dividend that is like you know that should be like red flag squared yeah. right now here's a company a2 milk and i shared this number large to illustrate the fact in 2014 it had 110 million dollars of sales right in 2017 it had about 550 million dollars of sales and in 2020 just recently reported it had 1.7 billion dollars of sales. all of these That's numbers in nz dollars <laughs> yeah. right in 2014, anybody looking at this business, you know, 110 million is, is pretty good, pretty decent. A lot of companies, you know, would be happy to get that. Yep. Uh, but the ability to grow that at a phenomenal pace, you know, 30% mm -hmm. pace, you know, this is actually larger than 30% because, you know, it has grown at like 40, 50, 100% and so mm -hmm. on, right? I mean, the compound growth is just astounding. Yet, you know, this company still invests on growth. It growth. It invests. It has invested in actually creating supply chains. It has invested in creating distribution footprint. Mm. It has 
made attempts to invade new markets and retracted when it figured out that it can't actually, <laughs> you know, get in those. So they tried UK and, you know, with milk and it didn't really work out. So they were, you know, I said, oh, okay, it's not working out. So, no, we're not going to try. Um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, the US business is actually going really good. So, you know, they've been focused instead on the US market, uh, the China market in the NZ market, the Asian mm. market. Yeah. Uh, so they, I think it's a little bit about strategy a little bit about you know um not trying to you know maximize profits immediately mm. i think mm. that you know and in and instead investing for growth and not trying to so i i think that that focus on the long-term goal of creating a brand creating um you know and all the things that come with the brand like the basic mode of the business is really the brand and the distribution right yeah, yeah. um you know, anybody can make milk. Like, I mean, <laughs> the stuff about making milk is not hard. Okay, exactly. fine, you make A2 milk. I mean, yeah, a foyer, uh, mate. Right. so, <laughs> so I mean, you know, you create cows and make, you know, there's some maybe more there. But I mean, yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. about this brand and the distribution yeah. and the fact that people see it. It's right there in your face yeah. when you go to a shop. So it's been, you know, I, I think this is, again, a fantastic example. I would say this is an, in fact, it would it would surprise you know if I told people that the multiple on this phenomenal business mm. is lower than the multiple that you play on Blackmores. Yeah, right. Right? How how would people feel? I mean, you know, the multiple on this is, you know, uh, thirty six. Right. It's on a thirty six times trailing. Blackmores is on fifty eight times trailing. Okay, but you're you of all people know that it's not the past that matters; it's the future, right? So if Blackmores manages to double profit next year, and let's say it doesn't, but let's assume it does, then it's cheaper than A two milk, right? On on a forward basis, there there is some there is some element of y- yes, trailing is one thing, but that tells us what's happened. What matters is what happens next. Yeah, well, well, in, both, in both cases. Uh, yeah, so I mean, would you want to bet on a business that doesn't have good distribution, that doesn't have a brand uh, comparable uh, comparable to A two, or would you want to bet, uh, you know, um, put your, you know, ride the horse that has actually built distribution, has shown that it can actually keep growing for a long time at a phenomenal pace mm. steadily it's not like you know one-off thing it has steadily mm. yeah, yeah that's right, right? Yeah, yeah. so I mean, I mean it's a question of you know it it probably goes to demonstrate that that business probably has that culture of growth and the right strategy mm. um and the brand uh and the distribution and mm. the footprint mm. right so i mean that's you know that, I, I think of a2 as, as a perfectly under the radar in that sense not really under the radar if you're if you're a 15 billion or 14 billion dollar business but i mean you know a2 in my mind is um you know one of those success stories that i think people should be talking more about um right and but people just probably don't realize it motley fool money Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Okay, let's talk about Afterpay. Um, I was trying to think Do of we good, have to really? I was trying to think of a good segue into Afterpay, mate. <laughs> this is a stock that is up, I said to you this morning, 10 times since March. You said, dude, it's up 80 times since when? Um, It's like probably like 80 times since when. It has gone up a lot. <laughs> It's, just, it's been a phenomenal, phenomenal performer. I don't own shares. I wish I did. Um, that being said, I still can't get my head around the valuation. I still can't work out how you can pay that much for Afterpay relative to almost any other business we want to look at. The, the, the sheer, you know, it's bigger than Coles, market cap-wise. It's one-fifth of Amex. Um, these are not small numbers. These are not tiny businesses. Um, it, it's Investors are expecting a lot of Afterpay. Now, this morning, profits out. Again, we're recording this Thursday morning, as we always do. Um, profits are out this morning. The results were very good. I think operating profit doubled, something like that, I think you were saying, mate. Do I get that roughly right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I've, <laughs> I don't know how to wrap my head around trying to work out the right price to pay for Afterpay shares. I'm just going to first you know, put out a number because you know we, we quoted some numbers and because I'm looking at, uh, looking at the number. Nice, so the, the shares are up approximately 30x since 30 June 2017. That's a lot. So if you're an Afterpay holder, uh, congratulations. If <laughs> I'd had 30 grand worth of shares, I'd have a million dollars today. That'd be a pretty nice That thing. would be pretty pretty nice. You could retire. Yes, I could. <laughs> and buy a boat. Go <laughs> well, here's a problem though. You know, you'd have to pay tax on that, right? It's a nice problem to have. But still, you're going to pay tax on it. It's, I, be, it's a I, lot of tax. We should be like New Zealand, no capital gains mate, tax. Mate, if I can turn 30 grand into 750 after tax, I will take that every day. No no dramas at all. If, if, if someone has a million dollar profit they don't want to pay tax on, just hand it to me. I'll, I'll happily take it off your hands. Uh, okay, well, it's like, you know, in New Zealand, there's no capital gains tax <laughs> a year. So, uh, anyway, that's besides the point. Slightly. It's a tangent. Yes. Um, yeah, so it's been a phenomenal run. Uh, I think the market cap is mm. around $25 billion right now. Look, so... Afterpay is 
a very difficult business to yeah. appropriately value. Yeah. That's what I think. Um, and and largely because disruptive business model growing really fast. I mean, you mm-hmm. you know, if your operating earnings are growing at hundred percent, it's really minuscule at forty four million dollars, right? Compared yeah. to a market yeah, that's cap, right. um, twenty seven right? billion. Uh, yeah, that's, but that's I a, mean, that's a lot of times earnings. <laughs> a lot of times earnings. But here's the thing, right? If you're growing at hundred percent, yeah. It wouldn't take long to catch up if you can uh, keep growing at 100%, right? So, well, so if it's 40 million bucks, it's worth $20 billion among friends. Yeah, well, that's, so a, that's a P of 500, right? Am I doing that math right? Yeah. So it doubles profits as a P of 250. If it doubles yeah. it against P of 125. It doubles again a P of 51. doubles again a P of 20. It's a lot of doubling I've got to get just to pay a half decent price, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, you know, if you could, <laughs> if you could keep doubling, um, what's, yes, an appropriate, what's, right. a, what's an appropriate P to pay for that, right? Probably and, well, that is, and that's the answer, right? That, it, that is absolutely the, the, the key question. And I don't know how, instinctively as, as, an, as an investor, my, my style, I don't know how I can pay that much on the hope that it might. I mean, the, the, the uncertainty... Com, you know, in that, yeah, yes, of course. The if if is one of those words, the smallest word in the English language. If other than I, I suppose, mm. and yet you know, <laughs> it, it literally it literally determines the fortunes of every investor on the planet. If it can keep doubling, yes, absolutely. If it can't, then there's something different. And, and the again, if in both cases, it's still a two-letter word. I don't know how to pass that and work out what a reasonable price to pay is. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm yes. saying it's wrong by the way. I, just, I literally, I'm, I'm actually saying I don't know. I like, I just, I have no, yeah. I have no functional way of saying. 10 billion is enough for Afterpay, 20 billion is too much, 40 billion is enough, 80 billion is too much. The the numbers are are staggering. I don't know how you, not you personally, but I don't know how an investor tries to pass that. Yeah, so a couple of things here, like the underlying sales, for example, doubled, right? So the underlying sales went from $5 billion to about $11 billion, right? That's huge. The number of active customers have doubled, right? From 4.6 million to like 10 million. Amazing. Um, Number of active merchants have gone up from 32 million to like, uh, 32,000 to like something like 55,000. so the business is really um, transacting mm-hmm. well. And I, I think the other key thing to note here is um, how quickly the business is expanding in in the US yeah. and, in, uh, uh, and in the UK, right? So here's an example, right? The underlying sales in, so underlying sales is basically total number of sales that's basically going through the Afterpay uh, channel. Mm. Um, ANZ is $6.6 billion. Mm. US is $4 billion. Right, but the US could technically right, right. be twenty times yes, Australia, exactly, yes, right? Yep, yep. And UK, which yep. could probably be at least three, four times of Australia, is only 0.6 billion. Right? Conceptually, though, can I favour be worth more than American Express, for example, or, or Visa? I mean, is there some sort of relative number where you're like, okay, well, I get it could be big. But if people are starting to pay more, and not they're not yet, we're still got a long way to go to get to that point. So I'm not suggesting it at all this is a, a sell now thesis, but in some sort of relative sense, given that the the, uh, the total digital market is kind of known because there's so many billion people on the planet, and given that Amex, Visa, Mastercard have been around forever, and they've got a certain size, scale, profit margin, market cap, all that kind of stuff, do you ever look at that and say, okay, well, when it gets to the, you know when it gets to half an Amex, <laughs> that that's that's putting too much optimism in the number, or do you say, well, no, it can be bigger than that because of X, Y, and Z? How do you how do you think about that in relative terms? Yeah, so I mean, the so the uh, the market cap of um, Amex is around eighty American billion, right? So if you know you multiply that by one point four to get the I'm just doing it, it's like mm-hmm. over one hundred ten billion Australian. Yep. So I mean, you know, when you compare with the Amex, yep. this it's is about a fifth, right? yeah, it's a yep. it's a size of fifth. Is is it right or wrong? I mean, hard to know, right? Again, mm. if this business can actually scale at that rate yeah if it can actually replace credit card usage meaningfully yeah or it at least creates this new generation of users who are actually afterpay users and not credit card users mm-hmm. then it there's no reason to believe that it can't be an amex like business right mm-hmm. um so now the 5x from here then right mm-hmm. i mean and, and 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 the other thing we have to realize is Amex is also growing, right? So yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. it's not that none of these things are yeah, right, static. Right, right. Like we, we we our problem really is that we we tend to think like oh you know, um, if a business is a trillion dollars, it can't be it can't grow. Well, you know, yeah. a trillion is just a number, right? Yeah, right totally. I mean, you know, a trillion you know you can grow uh, yeah. from trillion to two trillion, yeah. and and from two trillion to maybe three trillion, right? I totally, mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's all possible. So Absolutely. I mean, growth is all this. As long as there is growth, I think, mm. um, it, and can and you know it can keep getting market share and the other way to think about this is i think in a market when there is a lot of me too players mm. right 
That so is, many Me Too players. There are so many Me Too's, right? So many Me Too players. There are so many Me Too players. <laughs> so, I mean, there are two things. You could say there's a bubble, yeah, right? right? Everybody wants to be after pay like I, I will say I'm happy to say they won't all survive in their current form in 10 years time oh, that we all know right but yeah, I mean yeah. but the me too is is a, 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 imitation is the best form of flattery <laughs> yes, right? true, so yes. when everybody's copying the yes, iPhone yes. we know iPhone is a real deal yeah. right so I mean when everybody's copying Afterpay we know well Afterpay is the real deal mm-hmm. right now you know that you could ask you could say questions about you know, what is the innovation and you know is it easy to copy why can't somebody else copy and things like that those are mm-hmm. you know those are questions I don't have answers for um, my strategy, like, you know, we own Afterpay, um, you know, it's not a hugely large position, but it's not a small position either. You know, we we sold about half of our position um, sometime back. Right, okay. It was approximately like, you know, around $45, $50. Mm-hmm. We, we did think that, you know, the valuation was getting stretched. Mm-hmm. And then it has since again doubled, right? So <laughs> so this, this explains yeah. to you how hard it is to... Oh, yeah. Uh, to value it and you know how the market is viewed there's a lot of valuation issues here there's a lot of market sentiment issues here yeah. and it's very difficult to get it right so and it, you're right even and even if you get it right or wrong in the long term you can be right or wrong in the short term in the opposite direction right so afterpay may well actually be worth $50 but it can go to 100 in the meantime equally it can be worth $200 and it can go to 50 twice in the meantime I mean the very, the very experience this year of going from was 38 to 8 or something and then yeah. back to 100 yeah. in the space of 6 months now again COVID and obvious reasons but you know, were, were people wrong when the shares went from 38 to 8? Well, in hindsight, so far at least, no. Um, if they go back to 8, the different question, but that's the problem, right? Just because – and this is, this is a, a really, really important point, actually, Matt. Let me just quickly tangent slightly and very shortly for this one. People look at the share prices and say, oh, I was wrong because, or oh, I was right because. Sometimes that's true. Other times, just actually, no, the market's just doing its thing. You know, volatility is volatility. If you look at a share price and say, oh, I was wrong about company X because the shares are down – um, well, guess what? If you're wrong about wrong in air quotes in afterpay when it went to $8, you've been very, very, very right since if you just held on. If you let the market tell you the shares were worth $8 because that's what the share price was, the market doesn't... Here's the thing. The market doesn't know. Like, I, I, I really want to hammer this home, right? The market is not this all-seeing, all-knowing, you know, sophisticated people doing sophisticated things, accurately judging the value of these companies. It just is not. And if that shocks you, then cool. Um, I'm glad. <laughs> so hopefully it, hopefully it shakes you out of some of that. You know, when we see people quoted on TV, I've, I do the occasional TV slot myself, right? I, I, I say regularly, when people say, what do you think is going to happen next? I say, I don't know. I'm the only person who does, or at least our company doc is the only company that does because everyone else says, oh, no, I know what's going to happen next and it's X, Y, and Z. If you, if you knew what was going to happen next, Afterpay never goes from 38 to 8 and then back to 100. It just never does. And, and the fact it can do that should be everyone's, yeah, pick it, put it on your wall, metaphorically or literally, when that can happen in a market, Stop letting the market tell you whether you're right or wrong. Stop believing just because the market's up or down that that somehow you've got the story wrong if you're going the other direction. You may well you may well be wrong, by the way. You may well be completely right, but don't let the market, especially in the short term, tell you what you should think or how you should feel about the stocks that you own. It can be painful because the value does absolutely go up and down. But tell you what, as as we said, if you had that thirty grand worth of afterpay shares that are now worth a million bucks, that's a that's a pretty good reminder that the market's not always right. Yeah. That's it, right? That's it. <laughs> I am not adding anything to that, <laughs> mate. Um, so I want to let, let me let me let me take a bit of attention on that one. I've, I've kind of sold the lead a little bit here, but I, I don't want to bag the boss of Bingo. Bingo is the waste removal company. I don't want to bag him because he, you know, he was asked and he answered. I I've been fascinated by the number of CEOs who've given views about when the economy is going to recover. The Bingo boss said, "Oh no, everything will be back to normal by June twenty twenty one." And the media report that as if it's fact. And honestly, as analysts, sometimes I've seen our colleagues, I've probably done it myself, I've certainly seen our competitors do it, say, oh, well, management says the company will be back by March next year. And I kind of think, that's amazing because that guy's crystal ball clearly works when none of the rest of ours do, right? Now, and I'm not bagging the guy, boss at Bingo. There's an old quote, a, I think it was John Kenneth Galbraith quote, pundits forecast not because they know, but because they're asked, which I've always loved, right? So someone probably said to him, when do you think this is going to get back to normal? He said, oh, I guess by June 2021, and the media reports it as if it's fact, as if somehow the, the boss of Bingo knows this stuff because, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what they think. I don't know what they think his crystal ball's better than anybody else's crystal ball. And it's not just him. And again, I don't, I don't want to pick on him at all. I'd have no problem with answering the question he's asked. If he's asked for an opinion, that's his opinion, then great. What I worry about is the fact we, we are in the media, um, we're not exactly a media company, but we do have some sort of you know, public-facing website stuff. Um, the people in the media report this as fact. Oh, Bingo boss says business to recover by 2021. And then someone else will say the same thing. Oh, there's been other ones during, you know, retailers during this. Oh, it's going to go back to normal by August, by October, by when. And I just honestly, mate, it drives me bananas. I, and it, I, don't, I don't really care they say it. I don't care all that much that it's reported. 
what annoys me is the fact that it's presented some sort of gospel. Like, well, the company said they're doing this, and we've again, we, we've we've been in the same situation with the colleagues and friends and competitors who've, you know, well, I'm buying these shares because management said everything's going to be okay next year. It's like, well, if management knew that, <laughs> you know, how do they not know things were going to go bad this year? You know, they knew they didn't know COVID was coming, but they knew it was going to go away. So, well, good luck with that. You know, again, it might, it might not. We have opinions ourselves on stuff, right? Um, but when you when you report someone who just happens to be in a particular line of business, unrelated to science or medicine or demographics or anything, and gives a view about what might happen in nine months' time, as investors, we just need to ignore it. We just need to absolutely outright ignore it. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. I just, it, it, I, I just find it fascinating. And again, the fact we report it as, as gospel drives me nuts. Mate, uh, let's, uh, let's, we've, got, we've got some time for mailbag. Before we do, one, one last question. Yep. Um, zero this week. The online accounting software company announced it was going to acquire a business that's basically in the business of small business lending, and it's a it's an interesting kind of deal for zero. And I I have two thoughts, and I don't have either in, in particularly strong conviction. One is that vertical integration is obviously re- often a really really useful way of capturing a lot of value from a a value chain, right? If you can be involved in more of a customer's transactions, more of their operational lives, if you can get more data, if you can get more information, if you can make more money, it makes more sense, right? Um, it, Woolworths sell groceries and beer because, hey, if you buy groceries, you're probably going to buy beer and both is good and you're going to apply similar sorts of skill sets. On the other hand, business lending and online accounting aren't exactly similar skill sets and Peter Lynch famously talked to the US fund manager, famous story about diversification rather than diversification, which is when a business tries too hard to kind of grab too much into its remit, it can be it can eventually be diversified. Um, in other words, it just makes either it buys a bad business or it buys a good business but has no idea how to run it. And again, to use the Woolworths example, when it got into hardware and thought it could compete with Bunnings, it was an absolutely abject failure. And again, you would say, well, it should be that much harder if you can sell groceries and you can sell general merchandise a big W and you can sell grog. Surely you can sell hardware. That was not an unreasonable assumption, except. Turns out it was a terrible assumption to make and cost shareholders a fortune. So I'm kind of caught on zero. I don't know if you've, you've studied it. I don't know if you have a view. But again, it strikes me that done well, masterstroke to capture more of the value chain, done badly, especially in lending when credit's involved, this could potentially really threaten the, the solidity of the business's balance sheet. Yeah, I think I think you've nailed it. Um, I don't have a view on this. You know, I think it's called Wardle or something like that. <laughs> That's the uh, other thing, mate. Yeah. It's people buying stuff with stupid. I, I, I am allergic to stupid names and, and tickers in, in uh, ASX codes, as our listeners well know. And I just, when I bought a British Waddle, I did actually laugh out loud when I saw the name. I thought, I mean, Zero itself maybe is not the most uh, sensible name. And frankly, we work for the Motley Fool, so who am I to throw stones from this little glass house? But I, do, I did think, oh, man, that seems a bit tough. Yeah, so I mean, I looked at the announcement. I don't, like, I mean, I had the same sort of thought, that, you know, this can go either way. Um, partly what I think, with zero, the scenario is that I think zero is getting to a stage where the market has been carved out. So there's a there's a portion of market that the Intuit, which makes QuickBooks, has won. Mm. Uh, there's a portion of market that uh, you know QuickBooks has. Uh, sorry, a zero has won. Mm. And now the inevitable question in the quest for growth is what next? Yeah, right, right, right. And so what do you do? Like, I mean, if you stop finding growth or st- stop innovating for growth mm. then well in my language you'll be dead yeah right so um so that i think you know dipping your toes a little bit and seeing whether or not you have an opportunity in disrupting mm-hmm. uh banking right business banking for example um is an interesting idea but you, you know you got to be as you said Mm. very careful as to how you go about doing this this could you know be a poison poison chalice for example right so right um yeah, like I, right right now, I don't don't really. I mean, have a view. Mm. It was it's a small deal that they've made, yeah, right? Yeah, true, so true. it's a relatively small deal. I think you know if you throw a little small amount of resources at it and see how it goes. Um, I'm a fan of trying, okay. um, but you know also knowing pretty quickly that this doesn't work and therefore mm. backtracking mm. if necessary. So that's how I look at it right now. Yeah, I, I said I don't have a strong view. I'm not going to bother giving you a view. You know, sometimes again in our industry, we're supposed to give a view on everything. I really have no view on this. I, I am a little bit concerned slash skeptical. I think, um, but as you say, doing it right with small bite sized pieces. We know from from research that acquisitions tend to be best when they're small and they paid with cash rather than big kind of. You know, sometimes a company transforming acquisition genuinely is. Unfortunately, sometimes when it is, it's also transforming in a bad way. <laughs> Companies ever say that they say, "Hey, we're doing this thing." Um, so I, I I can't really look. Zero's done so well. It's one of those. You made the point about A2 before. I think, you know, 
I would extend your point. Would just say that I, I, I think businesses with long track records of success get rope, right? They get, they get some rope to go and do some things. Um, maybe they don't deserve it. Maybe they end up wasting it. Um, you know, Harvey Norman famously bought some uh, dairy farms because you know, hey, dairy farms, um, and that was a bad idea. And they sold them. You know, and again, Jerry made a mistake on that one, and he's fessed up to doing so. Certainly, plenty of other examples where businesses have made bad mistakes. Expanding often, by the way, the flip side is also true. You can buy a small business, uh, Prometicus. A little, a little medical software company that, frankly, wasn't even in that business and bought bought the technology that now is its business. Um, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, Afterpay. Afterpay actually was a, a was a customer of the listed Touch. Was it was it called Touch something? Touch Corp. Touch Corp. That's right. Thank you. Um, uh, you know, so and and again, that became part of its business. So you know, it's it's wise not to reject them out of hand, but it is also worth thinking about those that don't necessarily go so well and just keeping a little bit of a weather eye on on what's actually going on. You know, you know, the power of the invisible hand is often <laughs> often underrated. Actually. Right, right. Well, and this is a whole different thing, right? But the other thing is, like, not the invisible hand, just sheer dumb luck yeah. in, bo- in both yeah. directions, right? Like, yeah. if you if you think about, you know, the role of luck in everything in life, everything that seems so obvious in hindsight clearly wasn't at the time or people wouldn't do it. Yeah, or, or would do it. It's, it's yeah. one of those things where, oh, obviously, Masters was a terrible idea. Well, he was never going to work on that one. In another universe, Masters is, is as big as Bunnings right now and everyone's lauding the management for doing such a wonderful job and the CEO's on the on the cover of, you know, CEO magazine as the, as the you know, CEO of the year. It's funny how for all of for all of the things that we see in hindsight and try and diagnose and, and learn from, a, a, a unfortunately, large amount of it is just simply luck and circumstance. Yeah, luck does play a big, big role. You've got to be careful. Speaking of luck, got a question from Sam during the week, mm-hmm. uh, and actually, luck's a bad example. <laughs> bad. So we'll work at that later. Let's start again. Um, Sam has a question during the week. He 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 actually inherited some shares. Uh, I was going to suggest that was luck, but then of course an inheritance has to come after someone's death. So it was a, it was a terrible seg. Sorry, Sam. Mm. Um, I just I should think more about my segs before I go down them. Anyway. Sam says, hi, Scott and Doc. Question for the pod. Love your weekly work and always look forward to listening to your witty, genuine and holistic analysis on the world of investing. That's you. What was he said about me? Oh, he said analysis, your analysis. Oh, maybe I get world out of that. Anyway, <laughs> it also keeps me in the, in the know whilst living in Korea. So thanks. Sam, you're welcome. Hopefully you're staying well. Um, South Korea seems to be okay COVID-wise, so mate, uh, just keep safe. Um, of course, our Victorian friends as well. Make sure you guys keep safe as well. Do the right thing and uh, let's try and knock this on the head. Sam says, I was bequeathed Telstra shares from my father when I was 18. I also added to my position a while ago, but due to a disappointing couple of years, I feel my thesis is broken and I'm looking to exit my entire position. My question is this, am I taxed on the price my father paid for the shares for the price I acquired them for or as pure profit, seeing as I had no cost price? I know you can't give individual tax advice. Just curious about my options. Thanks for the time to read and answer the question full on. Thank you, Sam, full on. Doc, uh, I've, I've actually researched this one, so I'm happy to give an answer, but if you if you know the answer already, feel free to jump in. Um, I'm like, well, <laughs> I'll let you answer. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I, I, happen, I happen to know this answer because I checked it. I thought if I ask you to go first, then I have to say, actually, no, you're wrong. This is the, is the right answer. That would be a little unfair. Uh, I'm going to uh, let you answer so- that one. <laughs> Thank you. So again, Sam, as you've rightly pointed out, we can neither give personal advice nor are we licensed tax advisors. So uh, keep that in in account. But as a general rule, um, and in fact, in almost all rules, whenever you look this stuff up, you you see the phrase Australian resident for tax purposes and things get messier from there. As long as your your situation, as long as people's situation are generally vanilla, right? No issues with companies, trusts, who lives where, who lived where for whatever, all that kind of stuff, which is just painful and annoying. Inheritances don't come with any capital gains tax obligation. If you inherit shares from a uh, from the state, the price they were at the time you inherit them is your cost base for tax purposes. So let's say your father paid a dollar a share for Telstra shares. He didn't because they were never that low, but let's just play, play along for fun. And you you got them when the share price was two dollars, and you sell them for three. You only pay tax on the difference between two and three dollars, not the price your father paid for them, and certainly not zero, mate. It is pure profit, as you say. But the gain you make, the the shares had a fair value at the time of inheritance. That's your cost base for capital gains tax purposes. As I said, if you're not a resident for tax purposes, if it's trust and stuff, things do get a bit weird. But assuming assuming nothing else is is uh, is at play here. Um, if you inherit shares, you get them at the at your, whatever the, whatever the price is when you inherit them. That is your cost base for tax purposes, and then of course whether you hold them for less or more than twelve months, all that kind of stuff is important. 
You asked the question about different. Uh, you said you, you bought some more shares as well, Sam. Each of those tranches should be assessed separately for capital gains tax purposes. So, if you got let's again round numbers, the hundred shares you got from your old man at two bucks, that's the cost base. If you bought some more at two dollars fifty, another hundred, then your cost base on the second lot is two dollars fifty. You just simply work from that and work that point forward. That is important and relevant for things like uh, short and long term capital gains tax. By the way, so if you sold the whole lot today, some were short term, some were long term. Then again, the tax is applied per tranche of shares or per, per basket, per bundle, whatever word you want to use, of those shares. If you uh, held, the, held the new ones for less than 12 months, you have more tax to pay. If you've held the old ones for longer, less tax to pay and so on and so forth. But generally speaking, yeah, the cost base is the price the shares were at the date of inheritance. So I hope that helps. All right, that wraps us up. The good news is the mailbag is still overwhelmingly full. That's why we might do a special mailbag edition on Sunday. What do you think? Well, let's do it. I think we should. I think we should just just for something different, right? Just for just for a change, just to mix it up. Mm-hmm. Now, fools, we have continued to have issues with Apple Podcasts. By the way, um, Doc, I'm sorry to have to say that. Um, I know it makes you unhappy. The uh, we've asked the techies uh, at Podcast One. They've contacted Apple. That we haven't yet been able to solve the problem. Uh, I will say Apple hasn't been entirely helpful, Doc. So I'd like you to give Tim Cook a call for us, um, and, and we'll try and resolve the problem with that one. We don't know whether it's app settings. We don't know what's going on. Generally speaking, it only impacts our Sunday mailbag edition for some bizarre reason. Um, although we did hear last week a couple of Friday ones missed as well. Now, if that's you, you're not hearing this because this is the Friday podcast. But in general, please keep an eye out for it. Have a search online. Grab another podcast app if you want to. Don't miss out because we love doing the podcast. And we hopefully you enjoy it as well, particularly mailbag, which is always good fun. So if that's you and you are. Uh, you realise on Sunday you haven't got the episode yet. Have a bit of a dig around. You can probably can you stream it live from iTunes website? I think you probably can. Uh, probably. There's plenty of places. Anyway. Just Google Google uh, Triple M Motley Fool Money Podcast Australia, and you'll be able to find it and stream it. There's plenty of places you can stream it from, and other podcast apps if you if you so choose, including as we've said before, the Podcast One app. So they're always there. They give you a notification too if you're a um, if you're a Podcast One app user. You actually get a notification when the app is downloaded, or the podcast is downloaded. So you get to get it straight away, which is kind of cool. We're done, mate. Before we're done. We go though. I want people to do me a favour. I want them to buy, to join, to become a member of Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities because you're a nice bloke. Kevin's a nice bloke, and more importantly than both of those things, actually, no, I take that back. As importantly as both of those things, you're also doing a fantastic job of investing and helping our members beat the market. And so, the reason I say it's as important, by the way, is if people are beating the market, but they're not very nice people, there's a decent chance that somehow karma or at least circumstance will come and get them. <laughs> if you have good people doing the right thing the right way. Mm. Results tend to happen, right? And if you can combine those, you, I think you're better off doing that. Um, what's the other thing? If you lie down with dogs, you wake up with fleas. So I'd, I would I would join a service that had good people. I would join a service that is beating the market. And Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities is doing both for less than what, mate? Less than a coffee. It's less than a cup of coffee a week. In fact, less than a cup of coffee a fortnight, really. I'm really disappointed. Stupidly cheap. I, I'm just disappointed your pricing. You need to up the price. I thought you were paying too much for your coffees. Well, yeah, my coffees are <laughs> to pay another five bucks for coffees. I mean, you know. Join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. There is seriously no good reason not to. Like, even if you hate it, send me nine bucks for a trial if you've got a decent portfolio and you might find one or two great ideas. I, I, it's my to my eternal annoyance. And look, we're not the only business out there and there's other, other companies you can join and that's all great. To my eternal annoyance, if you can, if you can join some market-beating investors for literally less than 80 bucks a year, I don't know. I, I, I did beyond me. I don't know why you wouldn't do it. So go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. I'm biased. Absolutely. Am I trying to sell this? Absolutely. Do I also think it deep in my bones? Absolutely. If I, if I left the business tomorrow, the first thing I would do is rejoin our services and pay for it because it's just, it's just stupid cheap. One good idea a year, let alone two, three, four or five, pay for itself. Anyway, I, I'll, I'll stop because just- Can I say something? Yes. We you have can. 10 multi-baggers so that I've gone 2X or more. Hey, hey. 10. The service is about three years plus old. Mate, so we don't do research at this podcast. You know that. Yeah, but I don't, I don't know numbers. I just, I just say stuff. Yeah, but there you go. So 10, 10 multi bags. You could have, if you'd have joined EO from the beginning and you've invested in every single recommendation, you would have doubled your money 10 times on those 10 stocks. Not literally yeah. double it 10 times, but you know what I mean? 10 stocks you would have doubled your money on since, since inception, which is. Pretty bloody good, I want to say, because the market is certainly not up tenfold. Oh, sorry, not doubled over that over that period of time, is yeah, it? Yeah, we have one one that has up four times. There you go. That's pretty good. Anyways, done. And let's get a cup of coffee. Come on, people, what are you waiting for? Honestly, if you listen, I, I, we'll, have, look, we'll do it for free either way. You don't have to join EO. I don't care if you do it. Don't, I do care if you do because I want you to invest well. But uh, just do it. Just do, do me a favor. Do yourself a favor. Give it a go. 
Why wouldn't you? Anyway, uh, and of course, do subscribe to the Triple A Motley Fool Money podcast. If iTunes isn't working for you, use another app like Podcast One. If you're on Android, then you won't have to worry about that. But you do have to find an app you like. Pocket Cast is one I use for what it's worth. If that's useful, give that a go. Or as I said, use the Podcast One app. And of course, please do give us a rating. Leave us a review. Tell your friends. Write it in the sky. Don't graffiti it. Please don't graffiti it. We don't need that sort of grief. <laughs> just just you know, stuff that goes away. Write it in chalk on the driveway. Knock yourself out. Write it in lead pencil if you want to on some wood. No graffiti. But tell someone. Tell everybody. Because, hey, who couldn't use a bit more foolishness in their lives, Doc? Everyone should exactly. have more foolishness. Yeah. And, of course, you can do that by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. And you can get an email from us and some marketing, to be completely frank, and an offer to join Dividend Investor at that URL. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Sunday with a special Sunday mailbag dose of Foolish Insight. The regular special. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.